You're listening to a sermon from St. John's Anglican in Cranbourne. To find out more about us, head to cranbourneanglican.org.au. Well, it's, uh, it's wonderful to have with us this morning Nils von Kahn. He's from Anglican Overseas Aid. He's going to be uh, preaching for us this morning. Uh, thanks so much for coming, and uh, please do come and lead us. Well, thank you so much um, for obviously a greeting like that and also from Sam and, and Jimmy and all of you this morning for welcoming me. Um, I, I work with Anglican Overseas Aid. We're, we're the, the, the aid and development arm of the Melbourne Diocese. We've been around for about 34 years this year. We um, were known as Anglicord and we're still sometimes known as that. Um, let's put those down a bit. Um, we changed our name about probably 10 or 12 years ago um, for a couple of reasons, partly because people got us mixed up with Anglicare, who do some great work in the domestic scene in terms of foster care and, and so on, and also because we wanted our name to reflect who we are specifically. So we're specifically Anglican and we work in the area of overseas aid and development. And we have the, the clicker here. That's, that's right, no worries, thanks. Well, first slide's up there anyway. So I want to talk to you this morning about some of our work in Sri Lanka. We just started working over there with an organisation called Leeds. And this lady in the, in the picture there is named Sandali. And Sandali is finding it very difficult to support her family. Like many women in the rural part of the country, she continues to have responsibility for collecting water for her household. And Anglican Overseas Aid has recently commenced supporting um, people like her in this community over there. And the area where the project is located in the country was severely affected by the civil war in the country, and as well as the tsunami in 2004. And that resulted in many people being forced to move. The critical issue that women like Sandali face is irregular and seasonal income, which makes it very hard for them to plan and to budget and to then feed their families and to, just to provide basic needs for their families as well. And then, of course, like the last two years for all of us, they've had COVID-19 infect a lot of people as well, which has made it even harder for people to support their families. In their desperation, women like Sandali are often forced to go to money lenders who loan at very high daily interest rates and basically rip them off. Many then take additional loans to pay off previous loans and that leaves them in a vicious cycle of debt which is very, very hard to get out of. And so the project that we're working with, the people that we're working with there, are setting up self-help groups or a self-help group program which promotes the self-reliance of women in the villages. And self-reliance is a very important part of alleviating poverty, and I'll talk a little bit about that a bit later on. The self-help groups have about 12 to 15 community members, and they all live close to each other, and they create a savings fund for each other to strengthen their financial security so they can sustain themselves then later on. And these self-help groups have been shown to enhance women's leadership, their decision-making power, and their participation in community activities. So what all that does is it promotes the dignity of the women like Sandali. Because dealing with poverty is ultimately about dealing and restoring a sense of dignity among the people. So as I talk about people like Sandali in Sri Lanka, 
What has her life got to do with us here at St John's on this Sunday morning in Cranbourne, many miles away? What's it got to do with it? What's the link? Is there a link between Sandali's life and our life here? And even more, is there a link between the reading we just had from Luke's Gospel this morning and Sandali's life 2,000 years later? Well, I reckon there's a pretty strong link. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here this morning. So you see from this reading that we had this morning that basically everywhere Jesus went in the Gospels, he caused a crisis in people's lives. He always hung out, hung, hung out and hung around with the wrong people, tax collectors and sinners. And as Sam said this morning in the kids' talk, tax collectors were not very nice people and they weren't very respected people at all because they were seen to be traitors to the cause of, of their people and they had sold out and ripped people off, ripped their own people off to get rich themselves. And sinners were people like prostitutes and poor people who were seen to be cursed by God and that, that made them poor in the eyes of, of, of the religious experts of the day. And so here's Jesus hanging out with these sort of people and he's going around saying he's the Messiah. Something doesn't add up in the eyes of the religious experts and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law because Jesus is hanging out with these people who everyone rejected and no one wanted to be seen with. I remember a question once being asked by a preacher in the US who asked about people living in poverty and he asked people to put up their hands if they believe that God is concerned about people living in poverty. Most people put their hand up in that, in that service that day. Then he asked how many of them actually knew someone personally who is living in poverty. One person in the service put their hand up. In a world of global connection, the poor of the majority world are our neighbours. Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love God and love our neighbour. He never separated the two. For Jesus, loving God meant loving our neighbour. It was the greatest commandment, the greatest two commandments. And he said all the law and the prophets are summed up in just those two commandments. Everything in what they call the Torah the first five books, their law of, of, the, of our Old Testament is summed up in the command to love God and love your neighbour. That's what it was all about. And we see this throughout the Gospels. In John's Gospel, we see Jesus saying, as I have been sent, so I send you. So where was he sent? He was sent to the tax collectors and sinners, those who are sick, as we hear in this, in this, in this reading today. Then in Matthew's Gospel, we see in the story of the sheep and the goats, the tax collectors and sinners are the ones who are the least of these. They're the ones he spoke about in that story, of that parable of the sheep and the goats, where he identifies so closely with people on the outskirts, people on, on the, who are outcasts on the margins of society. Jesus identifies so closely with them that he says, whenever we help people like that, we're actually helping Jesus himself. When we feed the hungry... When we clothe the naked, we are actually doing it to Jesus. That's the evidence that we are followers of him. So his idea of the kingdom of God, Jesus' idea of the kingdom of God, which he mentions more than anything else in the Gospels, there's over a hundred times where the kingdom of God is mentioned. Jesus goes on and on about it. 
But his idea of the kingdom is completely at odds with what the Pharisees and the leaders, teachers of the law, say that is God's way. For Jesus, it was new wine, and it didn't go into old wineskins, the old way of what the experts thought was how to please God. And as he often did, Jesus offended them as well. Jesus wasn't this nice guy walking around tiptoeing through the meadows, as, as, um, as is this cliche that often goes around. Jesus wasn't nice, but he was kind. He was loving, and he was straightforward and resolute. And so what he said, particularly in the last line of this reading, didn't go down very well at all with the Pharisees, because he said that no one after drinking old wine desires new wine, but says the old is good. What he's saying is that the Pharisees and the religious experts don't want what Jesus brings. They prefer the old wine. They prefer to stick with the old ways, where they excluded people and where they called them sinners and said, we're better than them. Let's not, let's not, let's not mess with those people. But Jesus said something completely different and hung out with all those people that no one else wanted to be with. And yet, like I said before, he's going around calling himself the Messiah and doing acts that the Messiah does. Because back then too, if you look at the context, and whenever we read the Gospels, we have to look at the context in which it was written, the context in which those stories happened. And back then they'd been waiting hundreds of years, literally, for a Messiah to come. And by Jesus' time, the Romans were in power and they were hoping that the, the Messiah would come and overthrow the Romans, hopefully violently, and to restore the kingdom to Israel. So when Jesus comes along and says, love your enemy, of course, again, it didn't go down too well. And he says he's the one they've been waiting for, and it was nothing like what they'd been expecting. As again, he hangs out with all those sinners. And so surely he can't be from God, hanging out with those people, one of them. He says the poor are blessed. That can't be right either, surely. The poor are cursed, aren't they? They've done something wrong. That's why they're poor. That was the idea in those days. And he even ate with them. As you're going through your, your series in this church about meals, the idea of eating with someone back in those days too was a sign of radical acceptance. It was a sign of acceptance of people when you ate with them. And Jesus was talked about as a friend of sinners and someone who ate with sinners He accepted them completely. When I was in Jerusalem a few years ago, I met a taxi driver who was a Palestinian Christian and he just showed that that Middle Eastern hospitality. He drove me around up up the Mount of Olives, he drove me to Jericho and everywhere we went, people came out, he knew everyone as taxi drivers often do and he he just had people come out and and offered, offered me cups of tea and then he took me to his place And this guy had 11 children, and yet he fed me as well. And he took me to his house, introduced me to his wife and family, and he lives in the Kidron Valley, this guy. So the Kidron Valley is between the old city of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. And it's it's a very famous place. And he says, you know, there's the Mount of Olives where Jesus wept over Jerusalem. There's Hezekiah's tomb, and there's all these other famous places. And this guy lives there, and we're sitting out on his balcony with his family, and showing me this hospitality. That's just what they do. That's just who they are. And so eating with people 
is still a sign today, as it was 2,000 years ago, of radical acceptance. The New Testament theologian N.T. Wright, or Tom Wright, as he's often known, makes the point that when Jesus wanted to fully explain, just before he died, what his forthcoming death was all about, and we see in the Gospels too that pretty much things lead up to his death and resurrection. When Jesus wanted to fully explain what his death was all about, he didn't give people a theory, he didn't give them the four spiritual laws, he gave them a meal. And all through the Bible we see this concern of God for people on the edges of society. We see this concern of God for the poor and the outcast. There's a story by a guy called Jim Wallace who who started an organisation called Sojourners in the United States back in the 1970s, about the mid-70s or so. And back then, Jim wanted to find out what the Bible said about the poor and what God's concern was for the poor, if, if if God had a concern for the poor at all. And so what Jim did, he and a friend of his took a Bible and they took a pair of scissors and they literally cut out from their Bible every verse they could find which talked about God's concern for the poor. And the way Jim tells the story is he says what they were left with was a holy Bible, H-O-L-E-Y, because it was a Bible full of holes, because they found so many verses and passages which talked about God's concern for those living in poverty. Right from the Genesis story, the Genesis creation story, where humanity is made in the very image of the creator with full dignity and full rights. That's where our concept of human rights comes from. And then to the creation of, the st- of Israel, to the prophets who railed against the injustice of the people of Israel, people like Amos and, and Isaiah and Jeremiah, Isaiah who we heard from this morning. And then we have in the New Testament, of course, the Gospels, Jesus hanging out with, with the so-called sinners. And then the early church, where we're told in Acts 2 and Acts 4 that they shared everything they had and that no one was in need. There wasn't any poverty in the early church because they shared everything they had and lived in community together. There was no loneliness, no poverty, no one was in need. And then you have Paul going through the churches on his missionary journeys and talking about loving your neighbour as well. And then at the very end of of our Bible, in Revelation 21, we have this great image of the great Christian hope of heaven and earth finally coming together and it says there'll be no more tears no more pain and no more death because the old order of things the old wineskins if you like are passing away and the new wineskins God dwelling with God's people right here on earth the kingdom come on earth as in heaven as we pray in the Lord's prayer every week that is the great Christian hope when I was growing up in the church the great Christian hope was about going to heaven when you die. That's, 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 good. that's hopeful, that's great. But ultimately, the great Christian hope is heaven coming here. That's our great Christian hope. That we will have new resurrected bodies, a new creation, a new earth, a new heavens and a new earth together where there's no more tears, there's no more poverty, there's no more exclusion of so-called sinners and those on the outside where everyone is included. And we see this throughout Christian history as well, throughout church history. The great revivals of Christian history all had social roots, roots in in dealing with poverty and justice. 
The anti-slavery movement with William Wilberforce and John Wesley in the 1700s was almost entirely Christian because they believed that people were made in the image of God. You might be aware that the inventor of the altar call, where people come up to the front to give their lives to Christ, a guy called Charles Finney invented that a a couple of hundred years ago. Well, Charles Finney, it's not often known, made it compulsory for people when they, when they come up to give their lives to Christ, he made it compulsory for them to sign on to the anti-slavery cause as well. It, in fact, if people weren't willing to sign up to fight for the abolition movement back then, Charles Finney would turn them away, saying they hadn't put their faith in Jesus. For him, giving your life to Christ, having faith in Christ and doing works of justice were inseparable. You could not be a Christian according to him, if you weren't doing works of justice. He was also among the first to have women and African-Americans participating in meetings as equals with white people. He was a radical guy, and that's not often known about him. He saw that the gospel is both personal and social, and that the two can't be separated. And then the civil rights movement in the 1960s in the US with Martin Luther King, they actually required people to sign a pledge which included, included things like daily meditation on the life and teachings of Jesus, praying daily to be used by God and to walk and talk in the manner of love for God is love. If you wanted to be part of the civil rights movement, you had to sign that pledge and, and commit to that. N.T. Wright, who I quoted before, says that either Jesus is Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. Let me say that again. Either Jesus is Lord of all, or he is not Lord at all. If our gospel isn't good news to everything in life, it's not what the New Testament proclaims as the gospel. And what I've found over decades of looking at the gospels, looking at the scriptures overall, is that the gospel is much bigger than I'd ever thought. Like I said, I thought it was about going to heaven when you die and your own personal relationship with God. That's certainly part of it, that's a crucial part of it. And it's, it's, a, it's inseparable from the other stuff. But if that's all the gospel is, we are shortchanging the gospel. Because if Jesus is who he says he is, then everything has to centre around him. That includes our morality, our personal lives, our politics, our economics, our sexuality, global poverty and the environment. They are all central gospel issues if Jesus is who he says he is. And in this passage in Luke, we see that Jesus is the new wine. The kingdom he came proclaiming and embodying is none other than the reign of God on earth, the life of Jesus on earth. And as I mentioned before, the kingdom come on earth right here as in heaven as we pray each week in the Lord's Prayer. And it's already begun in Jesus And that's why organisations like Anglican Overseas Aid do the work that we do. We're not just a humanitarian organisation. We do this work because we are Christian. It's part of our outworking of following Christ because we want to be part of what God is doing in the world and follow God in that way. I'll just go to the next slide. Some of the ways we can do that, and I I, um, asked a question this morning about, about... this question, is $4 okay for a cup of coffee in Cranbourne? Is that accurate, you reckon, or is it cheap? Yes. Cheap coffee in, in $4, so $5? Yeah. 
six? Do I hear seven? No? No? Okay, so, so roughly five, you reckon? Yep. Okay, so if we gave up $5 a week, that gave up a, a cup of coffee per week, basically, that could help our work as well. Because we do need finances. But we also are very aware not everyone can give financially. And especially in this current climate with COVID the last two years, many people are really struggling. I mean, we talk about poverty overseas, but there are people struggling right here as well. We need to be aware of that, not, not forget that. And so things like prayer are just as important, probably more important, actually, than, than finances. Because prayer is an acknowledgement that we cannot do this work on our own. We are asking God to work through us, the Spirit of God to work through us, to go out into the world, to heal the world, because it needs healing. I mentioned there something called eBundance. That's our electronic newsletter. And if you go to our website, you can sign up to that. It comes out every quarter, and it'll tell you news about what's, uh, the, the work that we're doing. So those are things that we can do. And this year, we've got an election coming up, probably around May, people are thinking. And what you can do is talk to your local member of parliament out here and tell them about Australia's overseas aid giving. Tell them that you're Christians and tell them about Australia's overseas aid giving. Because our overseas aid giving as a nation at the moment has never been lower. Yet, despite COVID, Australia is still in the top three wealthiest nations in the world per person. That's a matter of injustice and it goes right to the very heart of who God is because we're the richest, one of the richest countries in the world yet our aid giving to poor countries has never been lower. It's actually about 20 cents out of every $100 that we give at the moment. We've pledged to give 0.7 and many countries have done that, and many countries actually are doing that. The Scandinavian countries, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, are giving 0.7% or more. We're giving 0.2%. So we can do better, and we need to do better. So just to finish off, there are some things we can do, and we'd love you to be part of it, to join us as well, whether, whether it's in prayer, there are prayer points on our website, or, or if you want to give financially, um, support one of our projects. You can port, support people like Sandali in Sri Lanka as well. Because in the end, it's, it's about people like her. And it reminds me of a quote from Irenaeus, who was a, a, a Christian who lived in the second century, almost 2,000 years ago. And one of the things he said was that the glory of God is a human being fully alive. The glory of God is a human being fully alive. Fullness of life or abundant life is part of our tagline at Anglican Overseas Aid. It comes from John's Gospel where Jesus says, I've come that you may have life and life in all its fullness or life in all its abundance. That's what we believe is God's dream for people like Sandali and God's dream for the world. And we'd love you to join us in, in being part of that as well. And I thank you again for, for inviting me here this morning. This is actually my third attempt to come to this church. COVID has, has um, put paid to it previously, so they say things come in threes, and today it is, so I'm really, really glad to be here and to join you this morning. So thank you so much for your welcome, your hospitality this morning, and I'm available after the service to have a chat with anyone who wants to talk more about our work um, and so on. So thank you so much once again, and God bless you.